0: Auros Fantásticos, la única oportunidad en su vida le ofrece Rosario llantas Radiales. Call toll free 555 Welcome to 200 a Day, a podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta.
1: And I'm Epidio Rivershaw.
0: And today on 200 a Day, we're going to look at one of our most recommended episodes. Yeah. In terms of people telling us, telling or asking us, when are you going to do this one? Season 2, episode 15, The No-Cut Contract.
1: Yeah, I was just about to say it's a good episode, but obviously, it's a Rock Profiles episode. It's been highly recommended. That goes without saying, so I don't have to say that. Maybe I'll just go into the opening montage.
0: Before we get into the episode, I'll call out why this is often recommended, I think, which is the featured guest star is a wonderfully mustached Rob Reiner.
1: <laughs> I envision him as a man that was just born a little old, mm-hmm. not, not like... Really old, but even when he plays young, he plays a little old.
0: Uh, as a child of the 90s, primarily, uh, I know him as a director. Right. So actually seeing him on screen in an acting role was was interesting and fun.
1: And I know him as Meathead.
0: So that's the thing. I've never seen All in the Family. So uh, my understanding is that this was a bit of a departure of of role for him. Is that true?
1: Um, sort of. Yeah.
0: I mean, I believe the the timing of it is such that he was on hiatus from All right. in the Family while he did this episode. I don't know if there's a story there or if it was just a timing thing. Mm-hmm. But Rob Reiner. I mean, he'd been. He was an actor first and he'd been acting uh, in TV and, and like short films and stuff from the 60s onwards. So it's not like he was a neophyte uh, in this right. role. And I think this is probably the high water mark his all in the family appearances before he started directing. And right before his, his directing career, which kicked off in the 80s, he did a couple TV movies, but then there's a Spinal Tap 84 was his, you know, launching pad for that. And then goes on to the whole list of great movies that people probably are familiar with and, and know and love. So uh, that is definitely one one of the standout elements of this episode. There's also a fantastic and higher build than Rob Reiner <laughs> cameo from the football player Dick Butkus yeah, who is still apparently revered as one of the most intimidating football players of all time.
1: Yeah, so I'm a teeny bit older than you are, and uh, I am not a sports fan. Uh, not I, you know, got nothing against sports in general. Uh, just never really caught on to watching it, with the exception of sports entertainment like wrestling.
0: That that would be the sport of kings.
1: Yes, the sport of kings. <laughs> but other sports, <laughs> yeah,
0: non-regal sports like football, right. Uh, I I think I'm in the same boat. Nothing really against it, but I just don't follow it. I don't really know the trivia or players, the history, that kind of stuff. Though I have heard of Dick Buckus. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say, like, just growing up in the era that I did, I just knew who Dick Buckus was. I mean, his name alone is enough for a kid of that era to know (laughs) who he is. But uh, I knew he was associated with um, the Chicago Bears, and that Mm -hmm. was...
0: Yep, Uh, Chicago pride. A lot of Chicago pride in this episode. Yeah. Rockford Files, as we've noticed, always likes to code the mob uh, as either from Chicago or from Jersey. This is a Chicago-centric mob appearance in this one.
1: And Nathan is broadcasting from Chicago right now, so he might not be at liberty to say much.
0: I'm in a circle of violin... What is it? Violin artists?
1: Well, yeah, I have it written down. Make sure you ask Nathan if he knows any violinists from South Chicago.
0: Uh, Not that I know of. And let's keep it that way. (laughs) This episode, in addition to the cast, is directed by Lou Antonio, fourth of the five episodes of The Rockford Files that he directed. Uh, He was also an actor, and I was looking at this because his IMDb profile pic is of one of the uh, half-and-half aliens from Star Trek. (laughs) So in the original yeah. series, there's the episode where the people are painted half black and half white in a way that is has not really aged well. No. But he played one of those, one of the main uh, half and half aliens. Uh, he was also in The Fugitive in a couple episodes oh, nice. and had a named role in Cool Hand Luke, among other acting credits. Those jumped out at me. He went on to have a a long uh, TV directing career of tons of stuff and tons of shows. But uh, yeah, good solid hand here, I'd say. And the writing, we know we're in in for a solid one because we have Stephen Cannell with executive story consultant Juanita Bartlett. This is our core Rockford writing team.
1: And it shows. It's solid.
0: So we know from the get-go that we're in for a good one. What do we see in our preview montage?
1: Right away, they tell Epi that he's going to love it because they give us angel He's uh trying to uh, he's warning Rockford that's where the the whole business about the South Chicago violinists and and other uh dubious people who are out to kill Rockford. The other big thing I think the preview montage gives us that I I really enjoy is uh it ends on a pool shove.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: This is I mean we've talked about this before. It's a classic Rockford move. Uh as soon as someone's distracted. Nothing fancy. Just Give them a shove, mm-hmm. send them somewhere they don't expect to be, and then get moving.
0: This episode has a lot of what I think we'll end up referring to as classic Rockford moments. Yeah. It's not that they're the first time that we're seeing them, but this is in season two, and uh, I think this is a good baseline for here's all the fun, neat, iconic, perhaps, things that Rockford does. In addition to the shove, there's also a J-turn in the yeah. preview montage. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get some driving. We're going to get some, some fights. Um, and we're going to get Angel.
1: We're going to get it all.
0: We're going to get Dick Buttkiss. We're going to get yeah. <laughs> everything.
1: And the, the uh, phone message. Mm. Uh, if you don't have the time to just quick check IMDB to find the translation of the phone message... The joke here, I think, is that there's no joke. (laughs) I did not look up
0: a translation.
1: Uh, It says, uh, fantastic savings, the only chance in your life to appreciate Rosario radial tires. And I I went looking. I couldn't figure out if that's a reference. (laughs) I think maybe I went a little too deep in hoping that it was anything other than he's getting a message in a language he doesn't understand. That's the whole joke.
0: 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we have eight of them to thank. Thank you to Mike Gillis. Check out his pop culture discussion podcast, Radio Versus the Martians. It's the McLaughlin Group for Nerds. RadioVersusTheMartians.com Kevin Lovecraft, visit MisdirectedMark.com to hear him on the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play Podcast, part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. Lowell Francis, check out his award-winning gaming blog, ageofravens.blogspot.com. Thank you to Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, and Victor DeSanto. And finally, a big thank you to Richard Haddam for his very generous support. Find him on Twitter, at Richard Haddam. If you want to get a shout-out for your podcast, blog, or anything else you do, check out patreon.com slash 200 day and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. So we start off with Angel talking to Jim... As Jim makes himself a sandwich, which I'm already in.
1: Yeah, you put Jim in a fridge and mm-hmm. there should be a Latin phrase for opening a story that way.
0: Angel is trying to pitch him on a con uh, for trying to sell someone a fake racehorse.
1: Right. It's Well, it's not a con. Not exactly. It's...
0: <laughs> it is, as he says, creatively speaking. Speculative, because Angel doesn't know for sure that there isn't a racehorse matching this description out there in the world somewhere. However, whether it does or not, he wants to sell it to someone.
1: He has a horse, and so he hasn't thus far proven that the horse isn't a descendant of Secretariat, right? Right. So uh, you might as well say it is, because we haven't proven otherwise. He says it's not strictly illegal.
0: Rockford... Is not a big fan of this plan. No. Uh, he kind of makes fun of Angel. We get good Angel Jim banter in all of their scenes. in This oh, one. Yeah. Uh, uh, this starts us off on a lighthearted, you know, kind of fun note, which is interrupted with a knock on the door. <laughs> Two guys who, as seasoned Rockford viewers, we know their <laughs> trouble. Push their way in. The guy in the lead is uh, is a gum chewer. Yes, snacking on a big of gum, which is gross and memorable. They know that Rockford is working for King Sturdivant and he want, and they want the tapes. Mm-hmm. Rockford and the audience don't know anything about this. We don't know King Sturdivant. We don't know anything about these tapes. Rockford is very insistent about not knowing any of these things. We get some back and forth where the, the gum chewer gives him a chance to come clean before they start uh, getting physical. Rockford is His sense of justice is affronted. Yeah. He hates being accused of things he didn't do. So he gets more and more sarcastic. The gorillas end up keeping them under one gun while the other guy tosses the place looking for the tapes.
1: There's a great physical bit in there where our gum chewer goes to backhand Rockford. Mm, And Rockford mm -hmm. catches his hand. Everyone is taken aback a little bit by this resistance, which is good. It's it's not that Rockford has won any sort of battle. It's that he's forced the scene to to treat him with, like, slightly more respect than it would have.
0: Yeah, we usually see Rockford take a punch and then get up or something like that. And so it actually stands out as a moment where he just shuts someone down before they can hit him.
1: Angel in this scene. (laughs) So they did a good job of establishing... Right away, the kind of character that angel is and the relationship with Rockford and how Rockford feels about that. and that and all that's over the sandwich as they talk about this con they're gonna do. but then angel throughout this scene is acting as if he knows th- what these tapes are right. because Rockford knows what these tapes are, right? Yeah. He's acting as if he has a secret with Rockford and he's trying to reveal it. And what he's clearly doing is he's got two guns on him and he's presenting himself as valuable so that he cannot be executed. And such amazing instinct.
0: Angel always gives you what you ask for, whether he actually knows about it or not. So he's feeding them more uh, suspicion of Rockford. And Rockford is getting increasingly angry about it. The guy tossing the place just breaks a bunch of stuff, just being a jerk. Yeah. And then goes into Rockford's little bedroom area and sees a stack of tapes, of audio tapes. He grabs them. Here they are four tapes just like yep. we were looking for and they uh peace out with the tapes.
1: Angel's like, "Oh, there you are. You th- you said you hid them good. I don't think that was a very a very good hiding place." Telegraphing to us that this is
0: not right. uh, the tapes that these guys are looking for. But they take them and Rockford uh says that he hopes they enjoy the er- Ella Fitzgerald, <laughs> and uh there's some Count Basie on those yeah. as well. So Rockford confirmed as a jazz aficionado.
1: Yeah. So the the goons have left. Mm-hmm. And it's Angel and Rockford and Rockford's revealing to Angel that it's just jazz on the tape and Angel wants to leave And once they find out that it's not what they want, then they're going to come back for us. And Rockford's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe the Count Basie will be good enough for them. You know, like that, like it's, (laughs) I don't quite recall what Angel says back to him. But they both laugh at it. We've just seen Angel lying and kind of selling Rockford out a little bit. Yeah, throwing him under the bus with this whole... And then we get this moment that just says, yeah, but these guys are friends. Yeah. Here they are. They're just enjoying a joke. That's all it takes. Mm -hmm. I'm really emphasizing this because I want anybody listening to this who wants to do any writing to just realize that. That if you just have this real human moment where people enjoy each other and laugh, you can get away with a lot between those characters. Otherwise, it it just falls apart.
0: Uh, I totally agree. And I think there's multiple points in this episode that bear that out. We get our title, uh, the no-cut contract, over a shot of... Angel eating some mustard while Rockford gets his stuff together. They leave the trailer without Rockford having the chance to eat that sandwich, unfortunately. <laughs> Rockford wants to go down to the station uh, to see Dennis to make a complaint. We get our title credits over a little moving, driving around L.A. montage. And then as they're heading out, Rockford asks Angel, Hey, so who's this Sturdivan guy, King Sturdivin? Have you ever heard of him? Right. And Angel first demands a bribe. <laughs> Of $20 to tell Rockford who Sturdivant is. And then spins out an obviously fake story about him being an African tribal king with a Dutch name who's in town for an art exhibition. And this is just more of the, the banter. And also, you can see Rockford being frustrated with Angel. But also, this is the kind of thing that Angel is good to keep around for. Right. Though he does say that if he turns out to be wrong about this... He's going to want his $20 back with interest.
1: Yeah, uh, that was a particularly fun scene uh, for me. We have a accounts payable and accounts <laughs> uh, receivable situation. We're on track here.
0: Rockford, of course, is being followed. He notices this as they wrap up that conversation and we go into, again, as we said, many of the moments in this are going to be classic into a classic Rockford car chase. Not long, but gives you everything you want out of a Rockford chase. We get to see him making some split-second decisions. We get to see him taking advantage of his environment. We get to see a nice little reveal, because at first we don't know who's following him. And then midway through the chase, we go to the other car and see a guy calling in for backup, and he's clearly a, a law officer of some yeah. kind. Um, so as audience now, we know, oh, the law's after him too. There's real trouble going on if he's getting the goons and he's getting the cops coming after him.
1: I enjoy the camera angles in this. I'm kind of juxtaposing... This with uh, recent movies that have had a lot of driving in them that I've seen. <laughs> mm-hmm. This one, it's actual driving. James Gardner himself is doing the driving, or mm-hmm. presumably, because that's what we know that he did. And the cars have weight to them. When they Mm -hmm. take turns, it feels, it's not very high pace, but you can feel there's a chance of hitting things and the camera angles kind of accentuate that. And I like, one of my favorite moments is there's a part where they end up going through a drive-in theater right so you've got all these posts with the the speakers on them that you would if you were going to the drive-in theater you park next to them and listen to them and the camera angle they're running down the rows but then when they start going diagonally through the rows they set the camera in a spot where it just it looks like they're going to smack into these posts
0: yeah and they look like they're bottoming out cuz yeah. cuz there's a bunch there's like troughs kind of in yeah. between where you're supposed to park.
1: Right. They're they're clearly driving where they're not supposed to drive.
0: Yeah, it's a great location.
1: Yeah. And I really appreciate it like this tension built into just the momentum of the cars and mm-hmm. these obstacles which they don't hit. Right. Yeah, that's the
0: thing. <laughs> you're kind of waiting for one of them to end up sideswiping through a bunch of these posts. Yeah. And neither of them do. We do get our our beautiful J-turn from the preview montage as Rockford gets cut off by his pursuing car, does the J-turn in the middle of, of this uh, drive-in movie lot, and then that gets him enough space to get out towards the exit. But there were multiple cars in pursuit, and he ends up pinned between two more yeah. pursuing cars. Yes. Yeah, so they're arrested by federal officers, and uh, they're also going to impound the Firebird, which is a shame. Oh. So we go straight to the federal building where Rockford has been being interviewed for two hours. He's been stuck there for two hours. There's a bunch of context clues around this conversation mm-hmm. and some stuff that doesn't actually get shown to us until later in the episode. But for the sake of clarity, it's the uh, the FBI are these particular federal officers. And Rockford's in a room with uh, the lead agent who is, in fact, Agent Shore, who we've talked about before right. on the on the show. Another in the Lieutenant Deal, Lieutenant Chapman kind of mold of higher echelon officers of the law who keep having Rockford getting involved in their thing and want him to do what they want or stay out of it. And of course, Rockford always has his own agenda.
1: And by this episode, there is a relationship with Shore between Rockford and Shore. They know each other. It's not like he's talking to a stranger here.
0: Right. And we don't actually hear the name Shore until like the last third of the episode. (laughs) Actually, there's enough context that, you know, the position of this person. We just don't really hear his name if you didn't already know the character until later in the episode, which is one of my favorite things about the Rockford Files, how they don't feel the need to create contrived reasons for people to give their names. They kind of trust you to be like, you'll learn it when you need to know it. Or it doesn't matter because their position is more important than their name. So, this scene does two things. First, it establishes that Rockford still doesn't know what's going on, doesn't know these tapes, has never heard of Sturdivant, and he is more and more angry because he's being poked and prodded about this thing that he just honestly has no idea what it's about. Right. In trying to give get Rockford to give him more information, Shore lays out why they're there. Right. This fellow Sturdivant apparently called Rockford, met with him in a bar at the the team's hotel, whatever that is, gave him the box with the tapes, and paid him to hold those tapes until someone with a signed affidavit showed up to reclaim them. Rockford still doesn't, he says, none of that happened. I still don't know who that is. What team are you talking about? (laughs) And Shore goes along with him and says, Sturdivant's team, the Southern Illinois Warriors. Larry King Sturdivant is the quarterback And he has these mysterious tapes that everyone wants.
1: This moment uh, is another one that I really enjoy because I I feel like it's a moment where Shore stops the interrogation. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. ostensibly still in the interrogation, but now it's people that know each other. Talking about the thing that's just happened. It's the moment that Shore just lets it all down and says, "All right, I'm now maybe not officially convinced that you aren't involved, but convinced that you aren't involved. Let's figure this out. Let's work together a little bit." Or at
0: least I'm willing to go along with you yeah maybe you'll go along with me
1: the acting in the scene is i really enjoy it because it, you could see the weight drop off of him yeah where he's like okay
0: they do have some tough talk uh yeah. as part of that shore threatens to club rockford's head between his knees <laughs> to which rockford responds you got to stop reading those crime fighter comic books they're yes. turning you into a cluck
1: yes the language in this episode is exquisite. Uh, I was thinking about this. If if I had read the dialogue, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have understood what some of it was supposed to be saying uh, sure. because of the the slang. And I think a lot of the slang is just invented.
0: Rockford's called someone a cluck before, and we thought right. it was hilarious. I think in uh, Charlie Harris at Large, maybe, is where we first saw it. And I wonder if that's just uh James Garner-ism. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a few other ones that show up. What makes you think I won't go tapioca? Yeah. He means, I guess, go, become violent like tapioca. <laughs> uh, because he says, what makes you think I won't go tapioca and throw you out a window or something like that? So the, the whole episode has got that top to bottom, lovely, lovely slang that none of it is difficult to understand because it's delivered in a wonderful context.
0: And none of it is objectionable. Right. None yeah. of it's like
1: dirty language.
0: Yeah. It's still family-friendly, it's just funny. Like, this is a very funny episode.
1: I also want to pause here for a moment, and I want to ask you a question. Can we now officially (laughs) place this in your taxonomy of Rockford episodes? Is this Rockford in Trouble?
0: I think it, I think it definitely is. So we recently recorded uh, and released uh, a, a discussion special., yeah. so by the time you're hearing this episode, it'll be back in our archives. It's episode 13, but we talk about the different varieties of Rockford Files episodes. and this, I think, is a great example of the Rockford's in trouble. He's not being hired to do anything. His friends aren't in trouble. right It's not an issue episode, and he's not running a con game in particular. Just people walked up to his door, wanted to beat his head in, and he has to figure out why. And that's uh, sent home by the end of the scene, which is where Rockford, you know, you don't have anything to to hold me on, book me or let me go. And uh, Shore says that he'll be dead by morning because – right. There's some tough guys out there who are looking for the tapes.
1: I I would like to say that we officially have our first recommendation within one of the Rockford subgenres here. Mm, This is the Rockford in Trouble prototypical episode. This is the one you could watch if you're like, what do they mean by this?
0: Yeah, definitely. There's very little of the other elements. It's almost all Rockford's in trouble. He needs to get out. Once Rockford, uh, once Shore lets him go, Angel's waiting for him because Angel was also brought in and interrogated. That's not really followed up on other than Rockford wants his $20 back. Yeah. Now that he knows that, uh, that the Sturdivant story was a lie. He,
1: he gets it back, minus the money that Angel used to buy his soda. Which we don't know how much that is. I'm going to guess 50 cents. Uh, right now I have Rockford at down 50 cents in this episode.
0: Rockford makes a phone call to find Sturdivant. There's a lot of, I'm going to do this thing, cut to result of the thing in this episode. We don't see Rockford running like uh, stories or con games or anything. It's a lot of good elision of the process because we care more about the product, I think. Yeah. So Rockford makes a phone call. Uh, He manages to find out where Sturdivant is right now in LA.
1: I should point out and this is this is a thing that I completely forgot and I think this is the most important angel moment of this entire episode early on when those two thugs came in through the door in Rockford's trailer and they pulled the guns on him angel describes himself as the local handyman and mm-hmm. tries to like blather off like oh I just need to get that kind of wrench or whatever angel wearing a ascot mm-hmm. is trying to play a handyman big lapels bright red ascot it's amazing anyways that's my favorite angel moment of this episode
0: so we now get our first view of larry king Sturdivin, played by rob reiner he's in a tv studio yelling at some production person about how he was supposed to be on some show but she makes it very clear that he was an alternate guest and there right. was no guarantee he has so many good lines because his whole character is revealed to us in like this right 15 seconds of seeing him, and then it's just compounded as we see him every time throughout the rest of the episode. He's never been an alternate in his entire life, and then goes off in a huff. Rockford comes in, asks her... Oh, is that Sturtevant? I need to talk to him. And she says, oh, don't worry. He can't get out that way. That's the fire door.
1: It's this wonderful undercut of his authority that he doesn't have.
0: He claims that he's a big shot and then he's immediately undercut. It's great. His mustache is great. His lapels are amazing.
1: Rob Reiner is great in this role and he's gonna do a lot of delightful things as we as we get on. But his co-star in this scene and for the next few scenes is turquoise.
0: Yes, he is wearing so much turquoise jewelry.
1: I mean it it's it's astounding.
0: Yes. so I I grew up in New Mexico.
1: I was waiting for that.
0: New Mexico and Nevada uh, and Arizona all export a lot of turquoise. So it always amuses me when I see the use of turquoise as a affectation or some kind of like affluence signifier. Right. Because when I grew up, you could literally walk down the street and just buy giant turquoise necklaces off of Native American women selling them on blankets. Right. That's just how things are. I think in this instance, it is supposed to show that he has bad taste.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to show that he thinks he's wealthy. Exactly. And I think it I think it works.
0: I mean, turquoise can be beautiful, don't get me wrong, but like the huge profusion of it is it's a lot. And it, and to me I was like, oh, I know this guy. Yeah. This guy thinks he's hot. But he clearly is not. All right, so Rockford, being very direct, as we know and love him to be, confronts Sturdivant about the tapes. What are these tapes that I'm supposed to have? Why are these guys coming after me? Sturdivant denies that he knows anything, doesn't know him, what he's talking about. Rockford notices that his teeth are capped, asks him about them, and then threatens to break those caps if he doesn't. (laughs) Tell him what's going on, which is something that gets called back to again throughout the episode.
1: Uh, I was thinking about this line because it feels like a little bit like that moment in Just By Accident where he knocks on a door and the woman has a Polish name and Mm -hmm. she opens the door and he says, how? How do you pronounce it? Right. Like it's this setup kind of thing. Uh But this works like that other one i felt fell flat but this one works because of how rob reiner's character is more than willing to brag about the wonderful dental work that he got Mm. rockford says caps and he's like oh yeah i know guy blah 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 i can hook you up or whatever i thought i thought it worked
0: yeah it works and they they like uh rob reiner and james garner have chemistry in yeah. these roles. They are fun to watch even yeah. while you're watching Sturdiven be a jerk. Oh
1: yeah, and we'll get into that.
0: So, with all this questioning, he realizes, "Oh, you must be Rockford." <laughs> and finally gives in to like, "Okay, I'm going to this party. You can ride along and I'll tell you all about it." And then this is the greatest brush off which is they oh. go out of the studio, go over to a Rolls-Royce that's waiting with a uh, a driver. And as he's getting in, Sturdivant goes, get rid of him. And then this this driver, who's also a huge gorilla, gets in Rockford's way and won't let him get in the car. So Sturdivant, he's kind of a poser. He's kind of a jerk. He doesn't really know what he says, what he presents himself as knowing. But he does have some kind of survival instinct, I think. Yeah. And we see all that in this whole scene. So we go to the fancy hotel party, which one presumes that's where he was going. And Rockford probably just followed him because not like you tried to hide or anything. And here's where we see the next, perhaps the final element of Sturdivant's character, which is where he is trying to chat up an attractive woman at this team party.
1: This is different in 2017 than it was when it came out, I think.
0: Yeah, so I don't think this was the language at the time. I hope not. I actually don't know. But our, our current parlance, he tries to neg her, right? Yeah. He just comes up and just insults her to start off.
1: You're beautiful, but your teeth are all jacked up. And...
0: I know someone who can do Taps, and immediate callback to the, to his teeth.
1: Yeah, he's he's pulling the whole uh, bag pickup artist routine. Yes, he's Rob Reiner, and he's charming to us as audience members. And mm. I think in the original airing. We would have watched it and been like, ha, look at this guy, no luck with the ladies. He keeps conveying this false confidence about having mm-hmm. luck with the ladies, but he's got no luck with it. Nowadays that makes the character tougher to kind of work with his charm, right? Like, yeah, because of the horrible internet mobilization of this particular behavior, mm-hmm. uh, th- th- this makes it more sinister than I think it probably
0: yeah, I think he's supposed to be kind of just dumb. Yeah. But it reads in our current context to me as more toxic.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: More more of a predatory kind of thing. And I don't think that's the intent for the character as written. It's just that part hasn't aged. Yeah. It's not that it hasn't aged well, because I do think this episode... It does. It follows a good wrestling practice, which is we have a villain and he does villainous stuff and then he gets his comeuppance. Right. If he didn't get his comeuppance about, because every time he goes after a woman, he gets shot down. Right. And that's fine. Like, I can watch that. Yeah. Because he has enough charisma as an actor and he has enough interesting stuff going on that like i still want to watch him but this particular the treatment of how he tries to pick up women has has more of an edge to it now than it would have when it aired this is presented as like ostentatious you are dumb for doing this behavior right but now we're in a world where people legitimately do that
1: yeah and argue that that's what you should be
0: doing right so uh, well i'm glad that we're on we're on board about that (laughs) However, this woman does shut him down yes. multiple times, which is great. And then uh, when she pieces out, we see our two goons on the balcony, the ones that came after Rockford earlier with another woman. And they basically are like, all right, now's your chance. They send her off to obviously, quote unquote, seduce... Yeah. I use that term lightly because it's not like she has to do anything. <laughs> it doesn't take much. But uh, just walk up to him. They need to get him downstairs. Don't take the elevator. In the background, we see Rockford appearing, and I love this. There's just one line where he he is talking to someone. I don't think we even hear the setup. But he's like, "Oh, I'm from the Long Beach Gazette or whatever." Right. He just like he's like, "Oh, I'm here. I'm from a newspaper." Because it was a press event, and there was a line earlier about how the reporters are gone, but he's there posing as a reporter. Doesn't matter for the rest of this scene, but it actually comes up later, and I love that's just the one line, and it matters. So we know why he's there and who he's posing as. But he sees Sturdivant and this uh, unnamed woman leave. He follows them downstairs, and while they're walking downstairs, Sturdivant is still giving her patter about how (laughs) great he is, and you see her roll her eyes... And all of her body language is so yeah. like, I can't believe I have to put up with this goon. Again, the treatment of her response to his right. approach deflates him, right? It puts the pin in yeah. his behavior and tells us that he's a jerk for behaving this way.
1: And, and maybe even pitiable. We'll, we'll get to that because later on that really plays in, I think.
0: So they go to a hotel room that's uh, on the lower floor. Uh, the two goons are waiting for them in that room. We go to Rockford's perspective. We hear a crash. He runs into the room. The two goons are beating up Sturdiven. One of them turns around, the, the gum-chewer, sees Rockford, and in another great moment, goes to punch him, and Rockford ducks, and he punches the wall. Oh, yells, so good. yells, holds his hand, and that's enough <laughs> opening for Rockford to just give him a couple blows, push him over, punch the other guy in the gut, and uh, hustle Sturdiven out of there. Another classic. Rockford fistfight.
1: Yes, over and done with almost straight away. The king here, throughout it, does the classic well, it's a good thing you showed up because I was just about to uh, lay them out or do something I would have regretted. He has to be
0: careful about uh, punching with his throwing arm.
1: Right, that's it, yeah. You gotta protect these hands because he's a football player. He's a quarterback.
0: So, Rockford hustles him into the elevator. They start heading down to the parking garage. And they're in this elevator for a long time, which is mm-hmm. great. You see Sturdivan getting more and more uncomfortable being stuck in this elevator with Rockford.
1: Where he's like I'm on the 6th floor or something like that and Rockford's like, "Yep." And they still are just going down to the garage.
0: And so here's where you get this might be the iconic line from this episode. So he he says like, "I have to watch out for my arm. I throw passes for a living." There's a beat and Rockford goes, "I noticed." Yeah. There's another beat and Sturdivo goes, "Not not with the women, not like that." So like, we <laughs> know exactly how Rockford just dunked on <laughs> yes.
1: Is this the spot where he then starts Hypothesizing about, like, because Rockford lets him know that she was a lure, right? Yeah. And then he's like, oh, but, I mean, that must have been a great job for her. She got to meet me. So even in this, he's self-centered,
0: He's in his delusional world uh, about his appeal to women. Uh, Rockford finds an unoccupied utility room in the parking garage, gets Dirtaman in there, and now he really wants answers. And he's getting more physically threatening. And uh, we get a little bit of exposition here. In terms of the story structure, this is amazing.
1: Yeah. Everything that has just happened to Rockford leading up to this moment happened to the king. He uh, had some thugs come after him. He had federal agents coming after him. Uh, He's just laying it out as if this is a sob story, that this is how horrible his life has gotten. You you can't imagine what that's like. And of course, (laughs) Rockford has just gone through all of it. So it, it holds these two purposes. One, it just gives us the whole backstory from his point of view. And not the whole, it doesn't fill in all the gaps, but it gives us enough to get him to that point. But it reminds us of all of the stuff that Rockford has gone through to get to this point and as you're watching it you're just watching them get ticked off one after mm-hmm. another like that and then that and then that and then he ends it with the the re- revelation about how Rockford gets involved in all this, how he passes this curse on to Rockford, <laughs> which is while he's being uh, investigated by the feds, he wants to make a phone call and finds a quarter page ad in the phone book, one that we're familiar with as Rockford file fans, an ad that he said was a pretty good ad. It was a good ad. So he called, he told them that he had given the thing to Rockford because is this this is the moment where he delivers it like better you than me, buddy.
0: Yeah, literally just picked his name out of the phone book. And that's yeah.
1: why Rockford's in all this
0: i also like how as he goes through the story which is beat for beat the same as you say we get to see here's the same story and it's happening to someone we like and it's happening to someone we don't like and we like right. to experience that i don't know if that's irony that that dramatic tension yeah this is the same set of events it's happening to a to a goofball and it's happening to our favorite pi and <laughs> how the feeling is different because we feel like he deserves it right right At least i felt like he deserves whatever's coming to him but Rockford—it's not his fault. He didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. It's a compelling set of emotions for for this viewer. So Rockford, of course, is like, "Well, let's go to the feds and straighten this all out." <laughs> Sturdivant does not want to go to the feds because, in addition to all this stuff, he's in some tax trouble. Right. He cheats on his taxes. Eh, he can't go to the feds.
1: When he brought this up, I thought it was—I thought he was laying a con on Rockford, and mm-hmm. I have a theory. About this episode now is that I, I like he is shifty, but he's not lying here. I don't think so. Yeah.
0: I think, in addition to all the other things, he also cheats on his taxes.
1: And that comes up a little bit later as well.
0: Well, Rockford's trying to get him to his car, and he, Stervin's like, Look, this isn't going to work for me because I'm just going to tell them my story and say that you sold the tapes and now you're just lying about it. And who are they going to believe? Rockford takes the the next step toward threatening violence. He pushes him against the chair, goes to punch him in the face, and finally, that's too much for Sturdivant. Uh, he really doesn't want to get his caps broken. <laughs> uh, he has this whole monologue about being a football player and being good at reading defense, and he doesn't figure Rockford for the type to really... Hit him and then he's just proven wrong immediately, which is great. But he has a new idea. His manager, the manager of the team of the, uh, the Southern Illinois Warriors, Dale Fontaine... He's the He knows about the tapes. If they can go talk to Dale, they can straighten this whole thing out. Rockford's like, well, why, you know, so what are the tapes? Why does this matter? And it's like, well, he's kind of in the mob, uh, and really the whole franchise is owned by the mob, so that's what the deal is with the tapes. Oh,
1: boy. Now we know why Chicago's involved.
0: Mm-hmm. Rockford, another thing we know about him, he's involved with the mob, he wants to get it straightened out
1: because right.
0: <laughs> he knows that going to the cops... Won't necessarily save his life if the mob wants him dead. Right. So they're like, okay, fine. Guess we'll go see Fontaine. Dale Fontaine apparently works late. They go to his office, which looks like it's probably in like a gymnasium or something. Yeah. They go in, the place has been tossed.
1: Before we get into that, I want to say how they go through that door because I think there's an interesting thing that happens here where Rockford goes to knock on the door and uh, the king just pushes it open. So Rockford doesn't even get a chance to knock. Now, after seeing this scene, we know why. But in that moment when he does that, I felt like that was a nice character. Mm. This is showing us more about how the king just thinks everything belongs to him.
0: Yep, yeah, the world revolves around the king.
1: Yeah, and I thought that that was, like, a really great bit of physical acting going on there. But, like I said, we're going to have some truth laid on this.
0: Which is that the place has been tossed, and Dale Fontaine is lying dead on the floor. He had been hit in the head with a with a football trophy. <laughs> there was a bloody football trophy uh, on the desk. Rockford sends Sturdivant to call the cops, which I expected him to just peace out. But right. apparently yeah. he does actually call the cops. So Jim stays in the room with the body. When King comes back, he comes back with his gun. Uh, which he keeps in his pocket. Rockford goes, I wonder who killed him. And Sturdivant goes, you did. Reveals the gun. And Rockford has this great look on his face and then literally says, why don't you just shoot me and put me out of my misery? (laughs) Sturdivant is going to tell the story about how he was working late watching some tape. He heard a fight. He came in, he saw Rockford hit Fontaine, and he's gonna finger him for the murder. Sure enough, the cops show up, led by our good friend Dennis Becker. Dennis arrests Jim on the statement of this witness. Mm-hmm. Stervin gives what I call in my notes the least convincing statement ever made, <laughs> and Jim asks for his attorney.
1: Jim also, as he's as he's being led out, he says, Did you really just pull my name out of the yellow pages? And one of the things that I like about this, I, I feel what's going through Jim's mind right now is that this is amateur hour. Yes. Right? It's not that Jim's like, oh, I fell for some big con. Mm. He's like, we were going to fix this. We, were, Or maybe not we were going to, but we were going to get to the bottom. We were going to find something out. But instead, you did this play. Great. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help anyone.
0: Speaking of being a child of the 90s, in a reference to uh, to the movie Clerks, it's a very, I wasn't even supposed to be here today kind of situation, right? Yeah. Like, there's no reason for, he, for him to be involved with this at all. But he just gets pulled in deeper and deeper. Yeah. All right, we go to the police station. Oh, Sturdivant yeah. is giving his statement, and he's giving it to Dennis in front of Beth. <sighs> this is amazing, because yeah. Beth... Rockford's attorney gives him nothing gives him absolutely nothing and he he tries to hit on her he tries to kind of schmooze with her and she just shuts him down doesn't even answer him gives him these like one word responses it's fantastic
1: it's incredibly badass it's hard to describe it's a fun scene to watch just because she's in a position where she's been there before as far as the police and Rockford and all of that she's the expert in the room Right. When when it comes down to it, the one person in that room that knows what's going on and how to deal with it is Beth. And she just completely controls and owns the room without having to say hardly anything. Yeah, she's amazing.
0: I also wanted to contrast this scene a little bit with one of our previous episodes, the Oracle in a Cashmere coat. Yeah. Cashmere suit, whatever the title of that one is. In that case, we get this bogus testimony from someone who's really good at lying. In the scene, we see how the listeners to his story kind of believe him or buy into it or give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. In this scene, you can see Dennis and Beth thinking, yeah. this guy is full of the entire time. But they're kind of bound by the rubric of the law to right. let him
1: say his piece. Dennis is almost apologetic whenever he says, no... Yeah, not till morning.
0: Yeah, Beth ends the her part of it by saying, like, this guy is obviously a flake. Yeah. Gretchen Corbett, you're the best. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for everything you did in this show. We go to Dennis and Beth springing Jim from his cell where he spent the night. And this is another great little scene because we get just enough to see each of their relationships with Jim without overstaying their welcome and while still delivering important narrative information for the episode. Dennis is excited. He's like, hey, all right, Jim, you know, you're free to go. Uh, So he's like excited to bring the good news to his buddy, Jim. And Jim is still mad about all this false stuff going on and just just responds with sarcasm. And then Dennis immediately gets defensive. He's like, what are we supposed to do? Someone made a statement, you know? Yeah, you know how we have to treat these things. And Beth brings the details that uh, someone at the party remembered Jim because he gave them his bio yeah. because he was posing as a reporter at 1030 and the uh, the time of death was established at nine o'clock. So they're not treating him as a suspect anymore because of that actual factual information.
1: As, as Jim points out, oh, you didn't think that I would kill the man, go to a party and then come back to hang out <laughs> at the murder scene.
0: He's like, all right, well, is there an APB out for Sturtevan? He made a false report. He implicated me. I was falsely accused. I want to see someone out there bringing him in to jail. And Dennis and Beth both try to downplay it. And Jim susses out that something's going on. Yeah. So Beth's like, look, there's special circumstances that I had to agree to to get you out. So we see like she had her own whole thing she had to do. Yeah. She's looking out for Jim's interests, but she doesn't want him to fly off the handle. So she's not going to give him all the information. But there's orders from upstairs, as Dennis says, not to bust Sturdivant just yet.
1: And here we get an uncharacteristic Jim Rockford moment because he says, it's okay, Dennis, I'll bust him for you. And this is against Rockford policy. (laughs) He's not supposed to get involved in active cases, but he's already involved.
0: And also this is for revenge. Yeah. This isn't about a case necessarily. This is getting his, his own back. Uh, they pass shore, leaving the <clears throat> leaving the station. Rockford is like, oh, so I see what your upstairs is yeah. all about. Dennis likes to refer to it as interdepartmental courtesy. Yeah, <laughs> and then Beth and Jim leave the station. Rockford is very angry. Possibly the angriest I've seen him. Yeah, no, he's... Especially in an in an interaction with Beth. The body language here is amazing. He, like, pulls his elbow away from her and is like, don't right. push me, like, because she's trying to calm him down and guide him towards the car.
1: Which is precisely a move that Rockford would have done, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is... I, I love that. It's a... I don't even know if it was intentional, but it was a nice mirror or reversal of that.
0: Yeah, but Rockford finally wears Beth down and gets her to spill what uh, why Shore, you know, wants Sturdivant to to stay out. He apparently owns a nightclub in Southern Illinois, The King's Castle. Yeah, uh, which burned down overnight. They think it's arson. And so they think Sturdivant's involved with something. They don't know what. but There's these tapes, there's this arson, there's this murder. And also Fontaine, the manager, uh, there's this tidbit about how he would brought a replacement quarterback from Canada, but the guy never joined the team. So Rockford thinks that Sturdivant has some kind of leverage over Fontaine. So that's his angle to try and figure out what's going on. But he does assure Beth that he's going to stay out of it. <laughs> And then she tells him that servants not as at his hotel, and he says, "Well, you save me a step."
1: This sort of interesting thing, because Beth has done more than lawyer work here. Yeah, she's done detective work, which is probably something she's used to doing, working with Rockford. And she's done the detective work, and she knows what his next step is. She knows what he would want to do, and like she's controlling but revealing.
0: She knows what Rockford would do so she can kind of you know head off the useless play right i kind of read that just as this is all stuff she learned from shore
1: i mean that's possible but like when she said she already checked to make sure he was out of the hotel or something to that effect so i feel like she's probably she learned a lot of it from shore because i think also that's a man who can't keep his mouth shut <laughs> So so this scene could be two things. It could just be shorthand for let's get the plot moving. So let's feed Rockford the information we need to get. Or it's here's Beth anticipating what Rockford's going to want, resisting because you got to. You can't let Rockford do this, but you can't stop him. So here it is.
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of the plot continuing to move, we go yeah. to Rockford connecting back with Angel at some at like a bar, right? Angel's been making phone calls and then tells Jim that he can't help him because Jim's in trouble. And if Angel helps him, he's going to be in trouble, too.
1: Now, Angel's trying to tell him this serendipitously, like he's standing next to the booth at Rockford City. Right. He
0: won't face him directly. He's like talking out of the side yeah. of his mouth. I hope no one sees us talking. Body language. And
1: it's- the most suspicious thing. If he just sat down with them, nobody paid attention. But because he's not doing it, obviously everyone in the restaurant's like, what is going on with these guys?
0: So Angel's like, I can't help you. And he leaves and Rockford follows him and uh, threatens to lean on him. Angel, I'm in real trouble here. If you can help me, you need to help me. he yeah. was like, eh, well, I don't know. He's like, if I have to lean on you, I will. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so come on, just tell me what you found out. Con to con. Yes. Pulls on their mutual bond of being con men at their core. Also, maybe because Angel's a little more comfortable since they're in like an alley doorway instead of in the middle of a bar. Right.
1: I do think the con-to-con thing was an attempt by Rockford to put him and Angel on equal footing. Yeah. Most of their conversations, Rockford tries to hold a moral high ground. Mm Mm-hmm and try to drag Angel up. And here, he really needs Angel's help. So he's like, I'm just as lowly as you are. Or exalted, depending on (laughs) how you feel being a con is.
0: So Angel found out that there are two contracts out on Rockford over this tape thing. There's a local one, and then there's one with the uh, the violin players from South Chicago. Everyone thinks that he has Fontaine's tapes, and there's some kind of mob related underworld info on them so no one wants those tapes to go to the feds right so that's why there's both local and chicago related pressure to shut him up and keep those tapes out of out of uh, shore's hands he also found out that sturdivant has a pad in hollywood so Mm -hmm. maybe that's where he went but before rockford leaves angel wants to get his camera back because you know those estate people, they'll lock everything down, and he needs that camera.
1: It's uh, yeah, and it's a camera that he borrowed that he needs to get back to someone or something like that. Rockford There's... borrowed
0: it, but he pawned it or owes some owes it yeah. to someone. It's a very angel situation.
1: You're gonna die, so I should get my stuff back from you. Like I, I mean, I, Just I appreciate case. your situation, but also I have a situation. Right, I will be inconvenienced. By your death.
0: Uh, And Rockford, being gracious for the information he got, tells him where it is in his trailer. And then Angel wishes him hasta la vista. (laughs) Clearly does not think he will be seeing Jim Rockford again.
1: It's a sad farewell.
0: Rockford uh, arrives at Sturdivant's Hollywood pad as he's leaving. He has a garment bag with him. He's clearly planning to, to get out of town in a moment which demonstrates just how not great of a football player, he probably really is. Uh, Sturdivant throws a garment bag at him and tries to run away. Rockford quickly catches up with him and tackles him to the ground.
1: This uh, this uh, scene, it could have been played out by young kids, right? Where the, yeah. Like, Rockford has a very bully position. He's on top of the king and holding him to the ground, and uh, the king is just saying whatever he can to get out of this. It, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if Rockford just suddenly
0: if he, like, hawked a loogie and, like, yeah, dangled it so that yes. it was going to go in his mouth or something. Yeah, it's totally that kind of situation.
1: It, it very much has that, that look to it.
0: Rockford has has the king totally in his power. He finally admits what he did with the tapes. He gave them to a girl uh, down on the strip, and they're probably still there. So that's where they have to go to get them. Right. Rockford lets him up, and uh, he punches Rockford in the face <laughs> to no effect. <laughs> Rockford punches him back, sends him sprawling, and he's like, well, I had to
1: try. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I love how there's that exchange and then his response to say, well, I had to try almost elicits forgiveness.
0: From Rockford? Yeah, this is actually where you start to see Rockford maybe not like him, but start to kind of play off of him. Yeah. Pity him, maybe, or be more interested in him as a person as opposed to just someone causing him all this trouble. Right. Because the next scene is the two of them driving down to get these tapes. We have Sturdivant lying out his his sad history uh, in kind of a monologue. He was always passed over. His sister was picked for the football with the kids before he was. Mm -hmm. And he just hates that feeling of being passed over. So he worked as hard as he could to beat that. He, you know, became a a high school football starter. He knows that he's on a second-rate team in a third-rate league, but at (laughs) least he's a pro baller. Right. Like, that's all he wanted was to be a pro, and he's a pro. he spends all this money, he has this Rolls-Royce that he can't Ford and he has this place in Hollywood that he can't afford and still no one actually cares about him and while he's kind of whining and complaining this is all we need to get a little bit of human understanding of him and make him a more compelling character
1: yeah and that's all Rockford needs too because one of the fundamental pieces to Rockford's soul is that he's a human character right like mm-hmm. he, he can hold empathy for people even if those people have brought this pile of to his front door and set it on fire
0: and also we're past the, the the pivot point right rockford's no longer trying to find out what happened now he's trying to right. solve it yeah so i think once he's in solving mode he has more empathy than when he's just reacting
1: and i enjoyed that in this scene the king wants to brag about what he has discovered right wants to tell rockford the secrets of the mob yeah. rockford's like No, don't. I don't want to know this.
0: So Sturdivant, the connection to the mob is that he bugged the conference room in his restaurant. And that's where Fontaine and his mob buddies would meet and talk about, you know, putting hits on people and mob stuff. So he has all these tapes of those conversations. And he has a line where he says, it makes him feel important to know this stuff. And that's why he's trying to brag to Rockford. Rockford's like, no, don't tell him. He's like, but it makes me feel important to know this. That's why I kept doing it. And that was his leverage over Fontaine. If he got replaced by this Canadian quarterback, he'd reveal these tapes because yeah. he's the star. He doesn't want to be replaced. The key to the whole thing is that Fontaine was selling info to the feds while he was working with the mob. So Fontaine had had turned, Sturdivan knew that he'd turned, and that was the threat to keep yeah. his job as the quarterback. Uh, so we now get to the, the resolution of our story. Uh, they drive to the apartment. As they get there, we see an ominous shot of two guys in a black car with a uh, gift box of chocolates that one <laughs> of them opens the lid to show a, a pistol with silencer that he starts screwing on. These guys obviously are violin players from South Chicago. Yes. While they're getting all prepped, Rockford and Sturdivant go to this pool party. He tracks down Lisa, the girl who he left the tapes with, who of course is hanging out with Top billing for the episode, Dick Butkiss.
1: Yeah, so you've waited this long, dear viewer. <laughs> we
0: finally got it. This goes exactly how I thought it would go. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing that this was a cameo appearance and the Sturdivant character has established, King is impressed and taken aback, quickly recovers. I'm King Sturtevin, You might have heard of me. I play on the Warriors. And Dick Butkiss just says, very politely, I'm afraid I've never heard of you. <laughs> Lisa, the girl uh, with him, says, "That's all right. Nobody has so yeah. undercut, undercut, undercut. But he deserves it." King tries to bond by saying they both have mustaches. Right? It's amazing. So this is right after he retired from the the, the Bears. Ah. Yeah, he played for the Bears from 65 to 73. He he retired after knee injuries. Uh, so this episode aired in 75. So, you know, he's a pop culture sports name. Right. You know, he's not playing anymore, but so he's doing these kinds of appearances, uh, I'm sure. But uh, he's still in his prime age wise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's not an old man here.
0: You can clearly see the legit versus kind of amateur hour. Yeah. <laughs> consideration there. So Lisa brought the tapes down with all of her other tapes for the party. So they're just in a box of music tapes that are playing over the sound system. <laughs> Sturdivant calls her a dipso, one of yeah. our favorite insults. Call back
1: or call forward. Uh,
0: and then they look through the tapes. Rockford, uh, Rockford sees the two hitmen coming in, thinks fast, and puts the one tape that they found on the tape player. The two guys come over to you know, take them away from all the people. And then as they're passing the pool, suddenly the music changes from music to a kind of Goomba mob accent talking about putting a hit on somebody. Everyone quiets down and kind of stares around.
1: Yeah, there's a couple that's about to jump in the water out of just sheer joy about being in love that stops short because they hear the icy cold voice of a South Chicagoan Mm -hmm. speaking about planning a murder. This little construct here is, I would say, just the weak point. Yeah. I think it was great seeing Rockford switch the tapes. But then how does it go from music to this after they've left the room?
0: Right. Is it some kind of automated system or something that we're just assuming? Like, who knows?
1: How does the audience react to the context there so swiftly? Mm. It's not that it's horrible or anything like that. It's the, you know, the fridge moment where you're like, later on, if you think about it, you're like, well, that didn't make sense, but that's fine. We we got here. We're going forward.
0: Right. And the point is that one of the guys recognizes the voice. It's like, that's whatever boss. And then runs to stop the tape. Yes. And that distracts the other one for our final great (laughs) moment from the preview montage, the Rockford pool shove. Yes. So that gets them away from those goons. They run outside and then the local goons are pulling up, have tracked them down and just start shooting at them. I appreciate the detail of the gum chewer having his hand all bandaged up from where he punched the wall instead of Rockford's face. This is when the the cops show up. Uh, One presumes that Rockford, as he so often does, called ahead of time and said, we're going to this place. Someone's probably going to try to kill us. You should be here. And sure enough, that's what happened. Dennis and Shore arrive. They arrest everyone. (laughs) <laughs> and our uh, our heroes are are rescued. So in our final scene, yeah. we have Rockford and Sturdivant in the federal building, cooling their heels, waiting to hear what's going to happen. And they're doing some dollar a goal wastebasket shooting. They're crumpling up paper yeah. and throwing it into a trash can. And they just have great banter about kind of the last little details about like what was on those tapes. Oh, lots of stuff. Lots of guys are going to go to jail. That kind of thing.
1: This is another one that feels like when he had... Uh, when Rockford had the king down in his yard, mm-hmm. in the king's yard, this feels like the principal's office, right? Yeah, definitely. This is the two of them bored to death, waiting in the principal's office. And
0: they've had enough time together where they can interact as people and not right. as adversaries. Yeah. Like I said, there's some banter, but it's kind of lighthearted. Yes, and They're exactly. not trying to, to scam each other or screw each other over. There's some good interplay with the making the, the baskets. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Sturdivan banks one off the rim and goes rim shots count for half <laughs> they end up even and then yeah. before the next one can be thrown rockford's like i have a last question for you i have to know right did you really just pick my name out of the phone book and Sturdivan says that no fooling just picked your name out of the phone book and we end <laughs> the episode with freeze frame on
1: rockford as he goes son of a freeze frame
0: end of episode
1: oh it's a good episode a lot of fun.
0: Good stuff all around.
1: Yeah. We got, I mean, I got some stuff I want to talk about in the second half, but I, I I, think that we went through and said most of the stuff we want to say about the episode proper there.
0: So, as you pointed out earlier, this is a great Rockford gets into trouble episode. There's no client. There's no money involved.
1: He's out of money here. Like, So, he loses 50, I'm assuming 50 cents on the soda. Right. Uh, He never earns any money. Like you said, there's no client. He's... Now being investigated by the IRS.
0: Uh, he says that Shore is getting him audited. He's sure that Shore is behind that.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, he's going to owe Beth for <laughs> all that's happened. On a whole, he's lost quite a bit of money doing this this particular episode.
0: So, yeah, he's just got himself out of trouble. He had two hits on him, and now they're, those are taken care of. A bunch of mob guys are going to jail. Uh, so it's kind of a things end up well, but because it's Rockford, there's, it's always back to his status quo right yeah yeah i just i really i think this one just has a really great balance like it's funny which is nice it's dramatic it has all of our favorite characters in just enough amounts Mm -hmm. it introduces details and then follows up on them there aren't really loose threads other than like you said like that tape gambit was a little like what would be fun to do here but it gets us there yeah. I like that they decided to give the tape a voice a little bit, so that's not just a, a, a MacGuffin.
1: Right, right. It, it's an actual tape.
0: Though I have a little bit more to say about that in the second half as well. But uh, yeah, we got to see some goons that are memorable. The gum-chewing goon is great. And uh, other than Sturdivant's pickup behavior having right. more of an edge to it now than I think it probably is intended to, but to the character's benefit, seeing a little bit of his humanity at the end yeah. makes him a more understandable... He's not really even a villain. He's just a schmuck. But we understand why he's a schmuck, and that makes him watchable. He's not yeah. totally not totally toxic.
1: I, th- I think it's an interesting spot that he... Cause, so he's the antagonist of the episode yeah there's some heavies and things like that but they don't even answer to him he's just dragging them along in his wake
0: yeah he's more of a foil than anything else
1: yeah and so he occupies an area that is most often occupied by angel right Mm -hmm. this is the stuff that angel does and i like that we get another person doing this and we've seen that a couple times before um the one and every port episode Mm -hmm. where the antagonist is another confidence artist right Mm -hmm. like that that's not exactly what the king is here but the king is just you know kind of a up who had just happened to hook rockford as he went along
0: and i think what makes him fun to watch is that you under like all of his decisions make sense given what we know of the character Yeah. Like we know that he's a character that makes poor decisions. So when he makes a poor decision, we're like, yeah, yeah, that was a stupid thing to do.
1: And every one of them is purely selfish. Yeah. So every time Rockford gives him a chance not to be purely selfish, of course you're going to get bitten. That's what we want.
0: So that's a a fun person to want to see get their comeuppance. And then he does. He's probably not going to come out of this great. (laughs) What with his tax trouble and his proclivity for lying and all this other stuff, Uh, though probably better than if the mob went after him. So, Right,
1: and I don't think he quite knows yet how badly the situation is going for him. So he ends a little jollier than he should.
0: He might never know. But yeah, great episode. Totally see why it's been uh, we've been asked to do it.
1: Yeah, thank you, everyone that recommended it.
0: Yep, go watch it. That's all I have to say for now. Yeah, go watch it. And then uh, after you watch it, come see if what we have to say in the second half make sense to you because we're going to pick out some things that this episode made us think about that mm-hmm. we can use for our own writing and and game design purposes so see you then While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now?
1: I'm excited about... Swords and Sorcery. The type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project... Codename Linking Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well.
0: Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the Worldwide Wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show.
1: Right. Welcome back to 200 a day. We just went over the no cut contract episode, a wonderful episode about Rockford getting hooked into a situation that he did not uh, intend to have when he woke up that morning. (laughs) Now we're going to talk about some of the lessons that this particular episode have taught us that we can use in our various applications of fiction, be they in writing or at the table as you play role playing games.
0: Our two favorite applications of, of fiction, as as those are the things that we do.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't speak with any authority to what you would do if you were to say write a television episode, except I know what I like in a Rockford Files episode.
0: Yeah. So, what did you? What was your your main thing coming out of this one that impressed you that you think is worth us uh, exploring a little bit?
1: One of the things that happened in here is a uh, Rockford applied a protagonist tactic that I enjoy reading and enjoy experiencing through high fiction, and that is the protagonist that gl- goes with the flow. Now, it's not immediately evident that that's what he's doing because he's angry about every step of it.
0: He does have an emotional motivation, which yes. is, I'm mad and I want to both understand what's going on and then make whatever is going on stop affecting me.
1: If he were, say, Robert E. Howard's Conan, Mm -hmm. what he would do is he would draw a sword and just create a river of blood out of everyone he encountered in this whole trail. But that's not who he is, right? Those aren't Rockford's tools. And that's not how his character works. His character is he wants to find out the truth. He wants to know what really happened. And he is in a world where there are forces stronger than him. The mob is stronger than him. The feds are stronger than him. The cops are stronger than him. The only person who isn't is King. <laughs> so what happens in this episode is that Rockford, he complains along the way. He he puts up a fight, a struggle with what's happening. But he goes with the flow each step. He doesn't try to get obstinate where he might in another episode where something Mm -hmm. else is happening. Uh, we have this beginning part where he is obstinate, where the, they show up and they say, don't you have the tapes? And he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And that has the like sort of classic Rockford. I'm not dealing with this. This is, you've got the wrong guy. Keep going. And then that doesn't work for him. They steal his, uh, jazz collection. (laughs) They're the real villains of the piece. (laughs) (laughs) uh from there on out he's you know trying to pick up the trail but things happen to him and he just kind of goes along with it yeah he's cut off from king when he gets to the limo because king tells the limo driver and instead of socking the limo driver in the mouth or trying to jump in the car you know like getting wily and jump in the driver's seat and drive off with him like there's a there's a couple things that he could do here that's still Rockford, mm-hmm. but more active than what he did, which is I'll fall back and follow.
0: Well, he he just follows up on the other piece of information he has, which is there's, he's going to be at this party. So I'll just go to the party.
1: So he kind of follows that pattern throughout the episode. And I feel like, you know, I don't want to make this like a a diatribe because it's not like I'm just this is a thing that you can have a protagonist do that's interesting
0: I I feel like this is a particularly apt pattern uh for the solo obviously the solo protagonist Mm -hmm. but also kind of like the investigator uh you know this is a trope from lots of detective fiction where it's like a thing happens the investigator is fictionally placed in a world where they can discover things so they just go around discovering things until they you know break the story or or figure out the case or whatever
1: i think the iconic like you you go to the sting when we talk about con games for me this particular style the iconic one i can go to is the big lebowski oh sure in the big lebowski all right so i've done some creative writing classes in college that that's what I got my original degree in, and there was a thing that they taught you over and over again because there was it was this problem that plagued one-on-one courses in creative writing, which is you want a protagonist that does something, you don't want a yeah. passive protagonist, right? There's good reason why they they drill that into you because in those one-on-one classes you just get so many passive protagonist so many people sitting in coffee shops wistfully wanting to fall in love or whatever the college experience is
0: you get boring stuff
1: yeah but the big lebowski breaks that rule in such a glorious way the the protagonist in that movie the dude does nothing proactive he's dragged along by his friends he's dragged along by his enemies everything happens to him and he solves the case right it's a thing a thing of beauty mm-hmm. and I think that this is not as far as it doesn't go as far as the big Lebowski goes here because Rockford certainly is pro- proactive at points in here but he strategically bends in the wind yeah. to let things happen so that he can get to the next point
0: one of the points where that happens that is an extremely Rockford files feeling moment Is when King reveals that there's a mob influence, that these tapes have something to do with the mob. And Rockford, up until that point, was like, we're going to the feds, we're going to the feds. And then once Mm -hmm. that's revealed, he goes, all right, well, now we need to find out why those tapes are important. Because if the mob's involved, I can't go to the feds because that won't solve my problem of the mob might want to kill me.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly.
0: So, yeah, that's a moment where, like, that bending of, like, here's a new piece of information, we're going to go down that branch now, but it's also a very character-relevant decision.
1: There's micro moments of that, too, like when he comes first shows up at the the TV studio to find the king and the woman, the Mm -hmm. production assistant that stops him and says, oh, he can't get out that way. Rocker doesn't chase him. He's like, oh yeah, you're right. Okay, I'll just wait here for him. Like, I'm not saying that that is a brilliant decision, but I Mm -hmm. think that that is great because it shows how he's going to react to some of the future things down the line. Like, oh, okay, I know how to do this.
0: So this episode is a good example of showing us a protagonist who does that. I think I I totally agree. I do feel like I had this kind of thought while I was watching it, especially the first third or so. This could be a very dangerous setup for a role-playing game. Because right. there's a there's a secret, there's a mystery. You're yeah. presented with an action. Guys break down your door. They're looking for the tapes. You've never heard of them. Mm-hmm. You don't know who they are. You don't know who this person is. What do you do, right? In many role-playing games, the impulse is not, I'll let them do what they want and right. see where this goes them bosses, I'll fight them or I'll chase them or I'll pretend that I know or, you know, something more proactive. Yeah. Do you think there's ways to make this happen in games or do you think this is a more like constructed fictional conceit?
1: Yeah, I think that when watching this episode, the two things you want to kind of look for depend on whether or not you're you're looking to use this in fiction that you're writing where you get to like you were saying, like a, a
0: you get to construct it. You get to construct the response. Yeah.
1: In that case then what you want to look at is is the audience going to get bored right. with what with this this character doing? And so that that's one concern. But when you're doing it as a role-playing game, your audience gets Frustrated, not bored. That's what I
0: was thinking about how like if you're sitting at this table and you're like this secret is being kept from me. Right. And I want to find out not because I want to experience the story, but because as a player, I need to know more of the context so I can make a character decision.
1: One of the solutions to the audience being bored versus the players being frustrated is to put the protagonist through the ringer Mm -hmm. because that's fun to watch. You get to see the protagonist get strung along and rung out and all of that. Mm -hmm. But that is precisely what is going to frustrate the players more because they're closer to this character. They can't hold this ironic distance from James Rockford. They can, but they need to be aware up front that they are going to be holding that ironic distance. And I think that that might be the key Mm -hmm. to solving it. When I play a role-playing game, I often, I I enjoy playing the king. Uh, Not necessarily the whole creepy pickup artist thing, but here's a character who is more confident than he has any right to be and in a dangerous situation and flying by the seat of his pants. And I know that that character is going to get their comeuppance and I am begging for it.
0: Right, you're playing towards yeah,
1: that. Yeah, I want that to happen. Like, so I think you do need some player buy-in, but I don't think that's the only, or rather, I don't think that's all the solution. Because mm-hmm. I don't imagine if I were playing Jim Rockford, I would still be frustrated with this,
0: right? Yeah, so I was thinking, like, if I was going to do this as a scenario for some game, I'm, I'm presenting this to my player who's playing Jim Rockford. I might start the game at the TV studio when he yeah. chases down King that whole first first couple scenes like that's all preamble here's the scenario right these guys have broken in they want this stuff they you don't know what it is you finally track down the name of this guy and you found him right yeah. cuz that's where jim starts making more proactive decisions and has context within which to make those decisions and has another character to bounce off of. Right. And then my other thought is just, which we've talked about this a lot, and I think it's something we both do in lots of our games. You know, these guys break down your door. They're looking for tapes. You don't know what the tapes are, but here's what they are. Right. So that the players know, here's the backstory up to this point. Now let's see your characters react to these other characters.
1: And I think that there's... This is going to get dangerously into design here. All right. Since... Dogs in the Vineyard, right? Mm-hmm. We have games that will incentivize people to take Fallout, to allow bad things happen to them mm-hmm. for a currency that they can hold on to or some sort of something that will deliver for them later in the game.
0: Right. You you take some kind of either narrative or mechanical drawback now so that mm-hmm. you have juice to do something you want to do later.
1: Right. I don't want to get too much into like what can and can't be done with that sort of design and what to look out for or whatever because I I have I have strong opinions there that I may not have 6 months from now. But anyways, what I am saying is that like I think that that little bit of spoonful of sugar helps that medicine go down. So that's another thing that can be done. Even in in something like Dread, where you have the Jenga tower, mm-hmm. in the beginning you're just flowing in the wind and not pulling. Then you have a nice solid Jenga tower for your, at the end. Mm-hmm. No guarantee, but it's something that you can play to. It's a it's a tactic that you can take.
0: Yeah, so if you, you have or make a game that incentivizes the players to be reactive at the beginning right, in order that they get some kind of currency or bonus or ability to be proactive at the end. Then you get more of the arc of this episode.
1: Yeah. But I I don't think that that's the only way to do it. No. And there's certainly other ways where you can just withhold the chance to be proactive. You could just say at the beginning, this is going to be a reactive scene. This is going to be a reactive scene. And, and Oh, yeah, yeah. Or lay that blame on the dice. <laughs> well, we rolled reactive. You got to be reactive. I'm I'm a big fan of laying the blame on the dice. I think that there are ways to do it, but I do think it's difficult because failing to do it for your group leads to frustration, I think, faster than other problems. Yeah. Coming down on someone the way that they came down on Rockford at the beginning of this episode mm-hmm. can lead to some frustration.
0: Yeah, I think if there's not some kind of player level either knowledge or buy-in yeah, that that's going to happen, it feels unfair. So watching it on TV, we're excited to see Rockford, who is aggrieved at this unfair thing, get revenge, essentially, right? right. Get, find out what's happening and get his own back. But in a game, that feeling of, of aggrievement needs to be managed before you get to it, as opposed to after it happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think this, uh, this episode does a lot of interesting stuff about proactive and reactive kind of uh, elements, and one of the things that it made me think about was the idea of the MacGuffin. Yes. Which, in this case, are the tapes. So, uh, we're, we're all good media consumers. We know the <laughs> the idea of the MacGuffin as, like, the thing that is supposed to drive the plot regardless of what it actually is, right? This is the the term from Hitchcock and the conceit of... It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's tapes or if it's uh, an oil painting or if it's a phone number of a mob boss or if it's a file folder full of documents. It's a thing that its pursuit or its treatment is driving the narrative. Right. The character motivations and what they want and and all that kind of stuff. But what I think this episode does is the tapes are the MacGuffin for the episode, but they're not just an X that you could slot anything else into and the episode would still go as it goes. They have an active component to them that actually drives what the characters want as opposed to being an empty space around which you could construct any
1: character motivation.
0: I don't know if that... Am I splitting a hair weirdly here?
1: Let's split it. Let's split it for the sake of splitting it. I think it's a a good distinction here. Yeah,
0: I might be being overly pedantic, but what I'm trying to get at is that part of the tightness of the writing of the episode, right, is that they are these tapes. They're not something else. And not only do they have a role in the plot, which is that the the goons mistake them for something else because tapes look the same and they're not smart enough to (laughs) realize, you know, that these valuable things are just going to be sitting on a shelf, which tells us something about the goons, mm-hmm. but also they're, they're part of King's backstory. And they play into his character, which isn't just that he's involved with the mob. He actively recorded them because he likes to know things that he's not supposed to know. That makes him feel powerful. That's part of his character. That's not just part of the story.
1: He has aspirations to be in one society or another that isn't accepting him. Right. He can't be a real pro baller. Uh, The women don't all love him. He can't really afford his limo. He can't be one of the made men, so he's pretending by listening to these conversations.
0: But that gives him some real power. Right. Because that's the leverage he had to keep his job, and that's the leverage he has to blackmail Fontaine. So that all serves a double purpose of both being a part of the plot and also being part of his his character. that naturally grows out of his character, why they're tapes and not anything else. And then there's an active component to them. At the end, as we talked about how Rockford actually activates one in order to distract the the goose, which is a little weak in its kind of cause and effect relationship, but the uh, choice made there was to emphasize the tape and connect that back to the very first scene where they wanted the tapes, right? Right. So I guess those elements, I'll make those more part of the texture of the show in a way that, you know, a file folder of incriminating documents that could be any file folder and that we never learn what the actual documents right. are, that could still propel the same plot, but it wouldn't feel like a natural outgrowth or a natural part of the fabric in the same way that these tapes do to me.
1: Yeah, the tapes sit in kind of an interesting situation because, like Rockford, we don't even care to know what's on the tapes. Right. uh, We just know that it's incriminating, right? We know why people want it. Rockford has a different reason than we do for not wanting to know what's on the tapes. There's that situation where he decides that he doesn't want to go to the feds. Mm -hmm. He knows that everyone wants these tapes, but then when he finds out that it's the mob bosses speaking, being recorded then he changes how he's going to deal with it. And that doesn't happen if, if it's just whatever. Like, do you have the files?
0: And it even leads to that great conversation in the car where King wants to tell him what's on the tapes right? and Rockford doesn't want to know. That's a character interaction driven by the nature right. of the tapes. Um, and it's great and it's great to watch, and it's great to see see this character be so desperate to show what a big shot he is, and yeah. Rockford be so desperate to not want to know because he knows it's not healthy. So yeah, I don't know if I really have a great takeaway here other than I appreciate whether it was accidental and just kind of slotted into place, or whether this was a, a thought out element. Right. It stands above and beyond some other episodes where there are a little more generic of motivators. Because there is that active component to like the nature of the MacGuffin is has a reason beyond to drive the plot,
1: and, and it has implications,
0: and that makes it feel rich and like well, we always talk about this this real vibrant world that they're sitting in.
1: Agreed. Yeah, it's a uh, think about what it is, and then the ways that that can hook and reinforce what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I don't even think it, like you can approach it from saying we need a MacGuffin. It's a transistor radio. Okay, well, why would they want that? You know, just enough to make people interact with it in a way that makes it more than just a generic blob that drags people along.
0: Yeah, you can build out from it. Yeah. It could it could create its own space and, and add its own, you know, yeah. additional narrative weight once you decide to go down that path. I just like this idea of that thing or person or whatever actively pushing things along as opposed to being excuse for the narrative to be happening. It's actually part of the narrative happening. I guess that's the best way I can try to pull those those differences apart.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a good distinction there. Uh, So I want to talk, just say something about the violence, and this will be very quick. Um, One of the things I like about uh, some moments of violence in this episode, we think we're going to have violence... How does that end? I guess you have to subdue one or the other. You have to knock out somebody. And we do get that. And that's a common thing that happens in in Rockford Files. Like he does sucker punch people and knock them unconscious or what have you. Or
0: hold them long enough for the police to come and arrest them.
1: Yeah. Uh, But I really like this moment where the king throws a punch at rockford and rockford just throws another punch and lays him out and he's like all right i had to try but you won you can beat me up and one of the reasons why i like that is that rockford himself does that from time to time in rockford files episodes where somebody will do something he's like okay i'm outclassed this fight is over uh and i like that because you can see that happen like if you watch nature videos (laughs) You'll see animals do these negotiations all the time. Like one that really stood out to me was a moment where it was, I think it was like a baboon or something that (laughs) had an animal that had had been killed and a bunch of meerkats came up to it. And the baboon was like, okay, that's yours. When it's so much bigger than these meerkats, but what it was is just doing the same calculation we're we're all doing now, which is I don't have the health insurance to deal with this. (laughs) They can make this not worth my time, so let's do this other thing instead. I, I find it really refreshing when that happens in, in fiction, where instead of a fight being until somebody gets knocked out or whatever the shorthand for the getting knocked out is or killed. I think I, I might have talked about it before, but uh, the show Person of Interest. mm mm-hmm. I can't remember how many seasons it went on, but it took me several seasons into it before I realized that they lulled me into thinking that shooting someone in the leg, first of all, was safe. (laughs) Which it isn't. You've got a major artery there. Mm -hmm. And if you get shot in the leg, go see medical attention right away. Second of all, shut them up. They would shoot people in the legs and they would fall to the ground and just hold their legs.
0: Mm -hmm. That'd be the end.
1: Yeah. And that removed them from the scene. It was this shorthand for safe violence, but it's not safe. If you got shot in the leg, you'd be screaming. Like yeah. there's no no human being reacts to being shot in the leg by rolling over and just going into a fetal position. So, and I don't mean to be just complaining because that just was the shorthand that that show was doing. We're used mm-hmm. to that we grew up on com- uh, cartoons like G.I. Joe and and whatnot, where you shot a plane and everybody parachuted to safety. You know, violence had no consequences. But I really dig it when. You have something like this in the Rockford Files where a fight is ended because somebody involved in it, they're like, oh, I've lost. Yeah. So we're done.
0: It's a nice separation of like violence as the reason for the conflict and violence as a method for the conflict.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: Not to be too, I don't know, crit-y about it, but like it's super easy. We have a lot of cultural momentum behind a conflict is a fight and a fight is its own right. reason for being and teasing those apart and being like, they're fighting for a reason. That reason doesn't need to be one-to-one with someone winning or losing this fight or being incapacitated or whatever. Uh, uh Jim and King, when they just punch each other, that's not about who's going to win that fight. That's about showing to the audience that, King really can't back up his game, and that Rockford really is more physically imposing than him. And that yeah. all of those threats that Rockford was giving him earlier in the episode, he was fully capable of carrying out, and that King made the right decision by going along with him. Yeah and uh, uh the the fight in the hotel room is just about getting King out of there, yeah, and showing that Rockford's a little smarter than these guys, following up on them being so dumb that they thought that his tapes were the real tapes, right, so each of these moments has like a character reason for like showcasing something it's doing it's almost a callback to something that happened earlier. It's not talking up taking up a ton of screen time, and it is violent, but it's not about the fight, right, yeah yeah just teasing those apart is really it is it is refreshing because it's
1: not something we see a lot and there's another bit in there where um that fight between rockford and king the fight the two punches yeah the the exchange of the two punches that is the beginning of them getting along
0: right yeah they well they've established their hierarchy like at long last
1: and there is a long tradition of this in fiction like i been working on my role-playing game based on robin hood mm-hmm. and been doing a lot of robin hood research and that is just the standard robin hood story where he comes upon a stranger and we all know the robin hood and little john one where he's trying to cross a river and little john is also trying to cross the river and so they fight and one of them bests the other and then they become the best of friends for rest of time and there's story after story after story of robin hood doing this but that's not just robin hood that goes all the way that's The Epic of Gilgamesh (laughs) is about two guys fighting, and then they're like, we're best buds. Right. So that's a fun result from this sort of conflict. But you can't have it be this final thing. You can't have it be this, like, death.
0: It can't take one of them out of the story. Yeah. I agree. And I think this is the the ratio of screen time to effectiveness in this episode is delightful, right? They're yeah. very short, but they're very concrete and do exactly what we need them to do and then we move on with the rest of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as always, that's all super smart stuff, and I thank you for sharing it with me. <laughs> thank you. Do you have anything else to say about the no-cut contract?
1: Again, I mean, I think I said this before, but thank you everyone who's recommended it. I mean, we were going to end up watching it, but hmm. it's exactly what I needed this week.
0: Yeah, we bumped it up the list a little bit, uh, and I'm glad we did, because it's great. Well then, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I think we've we've earned our 200 for today, mm-hmm. so we're going to go ahead and roll around in the fruits of our labors. <laughs> but we will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files.